uh, in the B, what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And so this morning we're going to address Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. I'm going to read with you, and if you have your Bible, follow along, um, verses 1 through 4 together. So let's read that. It's the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's the word of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you that you have come. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you adjust our thinking, that you, through your word, tell us who you are, tell us who we are and how we're supposed to relate to you. You give us the proper perspective. You give us, in your word, hope. You're our hope. We learn about you through your word and we get to know that you are the one worthy of our worship. You are the one worthy of our affection. Help us this morning to hear from you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. In 1900, 10% of infants died before reaching their first birthday. Much higher outside of the United States. But in the United States, 10%. One out of every 100 mothers were expected to die in childbirth. That rate's dropped 99%. Babies now expect to live through childbirth, survive, and live another eight decades in the United States, Western civilization. We live in climate-controlled spaces, thank God. We drive cars, most of us have a couple. Have TVs. I was in an old building that we're knocking down in my work where where I'm working now and we're building something new and... I walked into a side room, a banded empty side room, and I saw these TVs that had these large backs to them. Remember those? <laughs> My kids would see that and have no idea what it is. What is, it, what is this big thing on the back of the TV? I don't understand. Most of us have a couple flat screens. We can speak with people thousands of miles away through the touch of a screen. How remarkable is that? My daughter's in college in Ohio, and I can see her face and talk to her in real time on FaceTime just about every day. I probably drive her crazy. Dad, I'm in class. Stop FaceTiming me, right? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. I, I love this thing. I mean, I can be in an argument with my wife over what actor was in what movie, right, and immediately prove her wrong <laughs> through the touch... My two-year-old's sick today, so she's not here, and I'm just praying <laughs> she doesn't listen to this. <clears throat> Technology is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, you can speak out uh, in, in real time on social media about your 
love or hatred for a political party, you can speak out against the government, no one's going to throw you in jail. You can, you can participate in active protest. You can do incredible things that throughout the history of the world, no one was able to do. Isn't that true? Yet, I have this question. I ask myself this question as i addressing the Beatitudes here and what it means to be blessed. We have made incredible strides in progress. We have unbelievable technology. We have remarkable amounts of ease to our life and comfort, do we not? I mean, we don't roll down windows. We, this is still the universal signal, right? But we just do this. I talk to my car and it calls somebody. I don't even have to dial. I have no idea what anyone's phone number is because I just say, call dad, and it rings. Incredible amounts of ease. Are we happier? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. Do we feel... uh, It's one thing to talk about temporal happiness. Do we feel happier? Um, if we addressed biblical blessedness, do we recognize a depth of joy that comes from the favor of God in our lives in a way that produces contentment and joy deep down inside that goes beyond our ability to understand regardless of temporal circumstances? Do we feel that in our lives? So Jesus is addressing here with his disciples something pretty incredible, and really a question that's pretty universal. It's something human beings have been asking forever. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? Who is blessed? Who isn't blessed? And Jesus, sitting before his disciples, says, blessed, in verse 3, Mike talked about this last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? And then, right after that, very related to and in support of, he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nothing seems to be more contradictory to blessing than being poor in spirit and mourning, does it? I mean, I mean in direct contradiction to blessing or happiness or joy, I would, I would think of being poor in spirit or in, in further than being poor in spirit, mourning, experiencing mourning and grief. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What an incredible passage. I want to examine this with you for the next 20 minutes or so. Last week, Mike talked about what it means to be in poverty of spirit. And I, I'd be remiss if I don't address it again this morning because it's, it's in direct relationship to, to verse 4. What does it mean to, to be poor in spirit? It really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not you're materialistically poor. It doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not you got the newest iPhone or the, or the greatest comforts that anyone can imagine, the biggest house, the nicest cars, being poor uh, 
materialistically or being poor in spirit are two totally different things. And what we see here that Jesus is addressing with us is you're blessed if you're poor in spirit because you're coming to God with a correct perspective on who you are in relationship to God. You see, you're recognizing something when you're poor in spirit that produces in you an identity and a hope that will give you a blessedness that you can't even imagine. That's what Jesus is getting at. See, we live in a world where the greatest disease in the perspective of our society would be someone who's not self-confident and not self-reliant. Isn't that true? Come on, watch TV for 10 seconds. From Disney Channel to Ellen to Oprah to any show you could ever imagine, sit in a public classroom for more than 10 seconds and the greatest advice a teacher could give to a young child is believe in you, believe in yourself. Self-esteem, self-reliance, self-confidence are the highest values in our society and the greatest disease would be to not, not believe in yourself. And Jesus flips that right on his head. And he says, it's not about your self-reliance. It's about you recognizing you're completely impoverished and bankrupt and poor, and I will come. Amen? That's what Jesus is getting at. This is an identity perspective that will change our lives if we really see what the Word of God is saying to us this morning. And we let our perspective get adjusted to the Word of God. I was in college I had just come back from a chapel service, and I've had a couple of these moments in my life. I can think of three, three very distinct moments in my life where God worked in my heart in a way that made this truth come alive to me. I was eight years old at first. And a preacher was preaching in the Baldwinsville Wesleyan Church, right in the village of Baldwinsville, about sin. And I remember standing up, walking past my parents, no one else was up front, walking down the center aisle in the middle of a packed church and kneeling down in front of the pastor. When I was in college, I had come back from a chapel service, and I came into my dorm room, and I remember falling to my knees with this very real understanding and sense of my own sin. I remember just thinking about how utterly bankrupt I was. I had had, had a moment, I think, where, where God was speaking to me, and I, I began to accurately reflect on who I really am. And, and I don't think anyone other than God really knew the depth of my own sin like I did in that moment. Recognizing, I keep sinning. I can't stop sinning. I keep behaving in a particular way. I, I recognized how bent I am and how bankrupt I am. And I remember feeling this sense of, of mourning. And I wept. Knelt down and I wept and I cried out to God in an act of desperation. And I said to myself in a way that was so different at, at 18, 19 years old than I had at 8 a way that, that just I readily recognized my inability to fix myself. I couldn't get it right. And in desperation, in a recognition that I couldn't do it, I couldn't accomplish it, in a moment of really giving up, I just give up. I can't do this. 
crying out to God for his grace and his mercy and his help. Years later, I remember a moment sitting in our bathroom in my house on the floor in a similar state. Married kids, been in ministry, and just sitting there, unable to get up in a moment of desperation, recognizing my own sin, my own desperate failure, failing with my wife, failing with my kids, failing at work, feeling like a failure in every regard. Anybody ever been there? Mourning. And that, that, that's in essence what this is getting at. Poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. It's not just the temptation in this passage, if you look at it out of context, is to think just those who mourn over loss. That's included in this, but that's not all this is. We see here in the context of Scripture, those recognizing that they're bankrupt and poor in spirit, in desperate need of God, and now are mourning over their sin. My wife opened the bathroom door and looked at me, thinking, what in the world is going on with him? As I wept, can I tell you, those three moments that I distinctly remember in my personal life are the three moments where in the midst of what was my felt greatest desperation, greatest need, greatest like giving up moments, I found the greatest hope. I found the grace of God where the word of God uh, declares that he's enough, that his grace is sufficient, that while I was a yet sinner, Christ died for me. Those moments where I realized that, that, that God comes in and he, he blesses those who recognize their poverty of spirit. He blesses those who mourn over their own inadequacy and their own sins. When you get to that moment of desperation, that's where the hope of God can work, amen? That's where you experience blessing. reading about uh, some of the Puritan writers throughout history and just overcome with tragedy that they experienced. One particular author had lost like eight out of his ten children. And you, you read in his writings hope, you read in his writings grace, you read in his uh, writings perseverance, and what you see is those who cling to God and recognize their need for God are blessed. Those who are poor in spirit and recognize they don't have enough in themselves. Those who mourn loss and mourn their sin, but look to the right source for hope and for comfort. They're blessed, not in a way that necessarily brings the temporal happiness that a great steak or air conditioning or a beautiful car that goes real fast brings, but in a way that is so much deeper than what we would perceive as temporal happiness that goes deep down beyond our ability to understand. Joy. Blessedness, the approval of God, the hope of God. Amen? So Jesus addresses our perspective. Blessed, you think it's blessed to have a life of ease? 
Calvin says it this way. In his commentary on Matthew, if I can find it. One would inaccurately think that he who's, he is the happy man who's free from annoyance. Boy, wouldn't that be great? He is the happy man who attains all he wishes and leads a joyful and easy life. The mistake is that those who are happy lead an easy and prosperous life according to the flesh. That's a mistake. I know people that have more money than I can ever imagine. I know folks that, that have access to everything they could ever get temporally. We read story after story after story of, of actors and musicians and rock stars who are ending their own life. We as a society have more comfort than we could ever imagine. We have the highest anxiety levels in the history of the world. Our children are more medicated than any, any group of people that have ever lived on the planet for anxiety and depression. For the first time in the history of the United States, the last couple of years, our population level hasn't grown. It's actually shrunk because of overdoses and suicide. We have the greatest temporal comforts we could ever imagine and the highest depression and anxiety levels in the history of the planet. Blessed are those who have a ton of money and a lot of technology, great air conditioning, and huge houses. Nope. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who recognize their desperate need for God to forgive their sins, to hold them in his hand. Think of Moses when I think about this. And you see Moses who, who you know, was the ultimate example of not being self-reliant and self-sufficient, right? I mean, God comes to him in the burning bush and says, listen, I want you to go to the most powerful human being on the planet, and I want you to walk into his, into his court, and I want you to look at Pharaoh and tell him to let this entire nation of slaves go free. And Moses was like, whoa, wait a minute. I can't talk very good. My mouth doesn't work right. I can't get the sentences out in a way that's going to be persuasive. And God rebukes him and is, is frustrated with him. But when you read th that, that passage in Exodus, God's not frustrated with Moses because Moses didn't believe in his ability to talk, is he? God doesn't say, you got this, Moses. Come on, practice in front of the mirror. I'll help you write it. That's not what God says. He doesn't say, you got this. His frustration isn't that Moses isn't self-reliant enough, that Moses doesn't have enough self-esteem. God's frustration with Moses is, is, yeah, you're right, you can't talk. His frustration with Moses is, why don't you believe in me? And in my ability to do what I said I was going to do. I'm not asking you to be more self-reliant to accomplish the tasks that I've given you. I'm asking you to be more God-reliant and trust that if I ask you to do something, I'm going to back my play. And when you open your mouth, I'm going to be there and do what I said I was going to do. Moses, you can trust me. Amen? 
See, our temptation so often, particularly where we live and in our culture and in our setting and in our context, is, is to pursue self-reliance, self-belief, self-esteem. And, and Jesus comes in the Beatitudes and he starts right out and he says, no, 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 no. Your perspective is all upside down. You need to be recognize really who you are in relationship to me and that you're bankrupt, that you're poor in spirit. You need to come to a place where you mourn the depth of your sin, where you recognize suffering and difficulty. And in the midst of those moments in your greatest loss and your biggest tragedies, you turn to me. And when you turn to me, you're turning to a God who is there, a God who has provided in Christ Jesus. And you are going to have sufficiency in the midst of difficulty, and that's going to bring joy. Amen? Listen, Mike said this a few weeks ago, and I can't get it out of my head. He said, no one ever said it was that wonderful vacation in Bermuda that made me into the man I am today. Bermuda's nice. It's remarkable to me. Let me, let me go back before I say this and, and, and say where people get this passage wrong sometimes. This doesn't apply to everybody. I think the mistake people make in doing exposition on this passage is that every single person who mourns is comforted. And if you read verse 3, you recognize that the poor in spirit are those who recognize their need for Christ. And they inherit the kingdom of heaven. And when the believer mourns, and when the believer struggles, their hope is in a God who has saved them. You hear me this morning? Here's what you can recognize as someone who knows Jesus. I don't understand why this happened to me. I don't understand this loss. Seems like this person was taken too soon. It seems like this difficulty is too hard. It seems like my insufficiencies are too much that I can't be enough. I can't do enough. God, I don't understand. I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning loss, difficulty, tragedy, my own sin, my own difficulties. And in the midst of me don't under, not understanding any of this, I can declare with absolute certainty and faith which is not just believing and hoping, it is confident expectation that when I don't understand, you do. God, you are sovereign and you know exactly what you're doing and my life is in your hands, amen? And the favor of God is a blessing that goes beyond your ability to understand no matter what circumstance you're walking through. Isn't that good news? When we planted Missio in 2006, seven, somewhere around there. <laughs> so bad with dates. 2008. 2008? Uh, we started in 06. Yeah. <clears throat> Just no one else knew. <laughs> I was on the phone with Jordan Stinziano. And uh, we were planning and talking every day on the phone, and I had just moved home from Boston. We were excited. We opened our 501c3. We opened a bank account. 
believed God was going to do a work in our church plant. Jordan and Maggie had just come up and visited, and we're sitting in our living room, and Jordan said, yeah, Maggie's got something on her thyroid, we think, some kind of a tumor, just pray. We're not sure what it is. And we got a phone call. She's got cancer. Now it's in her brain. I said to Jordan, I go, listen, forget it. We don't need to plant a church. Just stay in Florida. He said, nope. When God put in our hearts to plant Missio Church in the city of Syracuse, he knew that Maggie had cancer, even though we didn't. My plans are not changing. They moved to Syracuse. We started Missio, and Maggie passed away very quickly. And we mourned. Sat with Jordan, four kids under 10. And he looked at us and said, I wouldn't change a thing. I want my wife back. But I wouldn't change a thing. This is God's plan and what God's done in our lives through cancer has drawn us into a relationship with God that, that I wouldn't have otherwise. I saw mourning, pain, incredible pain, but a blessing and a joy in the midst of suffering that no one could experience apart from God's work that he wouldn't have changed the value of it the value of it was so great only God can do that only God can take mourning and turn it into blessing to dancing only God can work in the midst of tragedy and help someone recognize a blessing that goes so far beyond temporal happiness but produces joy and produces growth and produces character, produces a relationship with God that's closer. And because God is our greatest value and knowing him is the greatest benefit we could ever receive, Many times our mourning produces a relationship with him that is, is really what we're created to have and brings something that we can never get unless we knew him better. Folks, God is who we get. God's not a means to get stuff. God's better than the stuff. God is everything, and growing in our relationship with him, recognizing our desperate need for him, and therefore receiving his hope and his grace and his love, produces in us a joy because our greatest joy that, that human beings are created for is to know him, and to glorify him, and to represent him. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you're in the midst of mourning, and, and difficulty and tragedy and in recognition of your own sin and need before God, you're comforted by a God in a way that brings a relationship with him that is a greater blessing than any stuff you could ever have. Any things you could ever get. Any vacation you can ever take. And even any relationship with a human being you could ever have. That relationship with God is greater. His comfort is greater. It's good news. It seems counterintuitive. It really throws our perspective and our, our way of thinking on its head. 
But folks, that's why we have the word of God. Because we can, in the midst of our, our bent, sinful minds that, that generally wander into, into areas and ways of thinking that are con- contrary to what God would have, we can scramble back to the word of God and say, I, I need to adjust how I think to this. This is how I'm supposed to live. This is how I'm supposed to think. So when you get to the end of self-reliance and self-esteem and counting on yourself, and you get to that moment where you're desperate in need and you give up and you reach out to God and he comforts. That's where the blessing is. Isaiah 61, 1 through 11 really lays out in a prophecy about Jesus and his coming. Is this ridiculous? Want to talk about technology? I am now so much quicker looking up a Bible verse on my phone. Anybody else with me? (laughs) Than flipping through pages. In the prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 61, we see this incredible news. Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They will speak of you in the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there'll be double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, their land they shall possess in double portion. They shall have everlasting joy, for I am the Lord of justice. The prophecy about the coming Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus, who through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the estranged find peace. Those who mourn are comforted. Through the death and resurrection and the promise, the covenant promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Jesus inaugurated this day of salvation. Through Christ, we experience the covenant promises of God. And in the midst of mourning, and those who are estranged were brought near and were comforted and were brought peace because of Jesus. Good news, amen? Romans 5. 3 through 5 says it this way. Not only that, listen to this, so counterintuitive, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. 
hope. We rejoice in the hope of glory. And we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Who are these people that are blessed when they're mourned? That are blessed when they're poor in spirit? That rejoice in their sufferings? How is it that, you know, and and this is an important note. Because I I think it's often preached that, that when you come to Jesus, everything goes great. Right? I mean, the prosperity gospel is, is, the heresy of that is spreading throughout the world. That if, God, if, if you really love God and you're really full of faith, he's going to bless you. He's going to give you a whole bunch of stuff. You're going to be rich. You're going to be happy. Absolute heresy. Nothing to do with the word of God. The gospel declares that, that you are going to suffer. You are going to have difficulty. Listen, You're going to go through tragedy. In this world, there are tribulations, the word of God says. We're going to experience suffering, and we're going to count it all joy when we suffer. Why? Because you're going to walk through difficulty, but guess what, believer? You're never going to walk through it alone again. That the great comforter is there, and that you can recognize that in the midst of my difficulty, God is at work doing something that I may not understand And that resistance in my life, because God's at work, is producing in me endurance. It's producing in me character. It's producing something in me that God understands is at work at doing. I'm his workmanship, and he is working on me. Amen? You can take joy not in ease and comfort in, in having relaxation all the time, but you can take joy in difficulty and in mourning, and in, and in struggle, because you know that God's in control, and God is at work, and the word of God tells us it's, it's producing something in you that's important. Character, endurance. We need this. I need this perspective. I needed the word of God to adjust me in this. It is so easy. The, the, the seeping of culture, the seeping of today's philosophy, the seeping, the syncretization of, of our culture in the church is becoming incredibly dangerous, folks. The, the self-reliant, self-esteem uh, pursuing self-confidence and, and self-everything uh, mantra throughout our culture is, is starting to seep into the way that people are preaching the word of God. Listening to messages that, that are completely focused on and, and just, just saturated with what God's called you to do and your purpose and your destiny and you're this and you're that and you and what God's going to do in you. Folks, listen. God is going to do great things in you to his glory. Amen? For him. We got to scramble back to the word of God. And I guess let me end with this because I'm beginning to ramble. Just some application. You're going to find your greatest joy and your greatest blessing when you get to the end of yourself. When you throw your life 
on the altar in desperation and in recognition of your need for him. Some of you have been scrambling and struggling and kind of getting by on your self-reliance. And you're going to come to the end of that. You're not going to know what to do. The word of God addresses it. Others of you, you don't need that admonition. You're at the end of yourself. You're mourning. You're struggling. You're hurt. And you're in need of comfort. Take hope and joy this morning. You're halfway there. You're in the right place to get it. Because God blesses those who are poor in spirit. And he blesses those who are mourning. Being poor in spirit means recognizing your need for him this morning. Turn to Christ and he will comfort. Turn to Christ and he will bring about a blessing in your life that goes so far beyond your pain and your tragedy. Every one of us is going to be there if you're not there now. You live long enough, you're going to bleed. You're going to feel it. And like my friend Jordan and so many others in this congregation, you're going to know exactly where to turn. You know what's amazing about that? I've been in ministry since... My first day of full-time ministry was June 1st, 1998. And I've spent over 20 years with a front row seat to the grace of God in the lives of people experiencing tragedy. It's unbelievable. Blessed are those who mourn. You'll be comforted. Turn to him. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you are the great comforter. Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we turn? You are the God of the universe. You're sovereign. You're in control. And you're not just this big sovereign God who knows and understands and controls everything who's far off, but you've revealed to us in your word that you are a God who is sovereign, who knows and controls everything, and you're near. You love us. You died for us, and you bring comfort. We come to you this morning, not full of capability, not full of self, not full of achievement, We come to you this morning empty, broken, and in need of you. You meet that need, God, and we worship you for it. You are the only one who deserves worship. We certainly don't. In Jesus' name, everybody said.